Hey everyone, welcome to the Live Your Best Life podcast. I'm your host, Kathy Jamison. Once a week, I'll be sharing personal health and wellness stories with you, as well as interviewing various health experts. More than anything, I hope this podcast will really inspire you on your own health and wellness journey. Don't forget to subscribe where you listen to your podcast so you don't ever miss an episode. Before we begin, I want to remind everyone that Live Your Best Life podcast was created for general informational purposes only. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast. All right, now on with the show. So today I'm talking with Steve Lane. He is a holistic health coach and uh, he's been following a primal lifestyle for about 10 years. Uh, Steve, welcome to the Live Your Best Life podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your own personal journey before we get into everything that you're doing now. Uh, tell me a little bit about your health journey and what led you to what you're doing now. Yeah, for sure. So um, I grew up and for like the, until I was probably about 13 years old, I was kind of, you know, always quite a chubby kid and was a bit self-conscious about that. And then around 13, 14 years old, I started to play rugby, which is a big popular sport in England, second only to football, which the Americans call soccer, but it's still football to me. So I started to play rugby and, and getting introduced into a sporting environment helped a little bit with body composition stuff. I lost a bit of my puppy fat, as it is so often called. And that allowed me to, you know, feel a little bit more confident in all of that stuff and started to, you know, just enjoy athletics a little bit more. And, um, you know, kind of secretly had this dream of, you know, hopefully pursuing that as a professional career. I really took to it quite quickly and, and was quite good um, and was working very hard and was, you know, like all kids dream of, you know, just doing the sport for, for you know, making a career out of that. And at the time in England, the way the system is kind of set up, it's around, you know, 16 years old that you kind of get, you get brought onto the teams and sponsored or you kind of don't. And unfortunately, I didn't make the cut to continue that rugby journey. And that kind of left me with a little bit of a void to fill in terms of my athletic endeavors and, you know, where do I go next? Because I was kind of banking on that a little bit. Um, so, you know, I had a lot of just athletic energy left over and I didn't know what to do. And rugby just didn't seem that appealing to me anymore to play at a non-professional level. So I stumbled upon a few martial arts, uh, traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu. And then, a, and then a, a friend of my dad's new Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is basically a, a ground fighting system. And that led me to, you know, putting on some boxing gloves for the first time and hitting the pads and just really having fun with that. So that was my in introduction into mixed martial arts. And that kind of was the catalyst for starting to learn about the body and stuff, too, because at that time, you know, I started to train in that and started to think about the idea of competing and you compete in weight classes. And that meant, you know, cutting weight and managing weight and all of this stuff. And basically, I was able to do that uh, successfully. I was able to get down to my goal weights, but it definitely wasn't easy. And I remember just, you know, being overwhelmed by the amount of information that was out there in terms of, you know, what was the correct way to diet down, to make weight. And I was basically, you know, ending up super calorie restricted, um, tracking my every bite of food, every morsel of food, all my macros, all of that stuff. And I was training like a full-time athlete, you know, it was six days a week, two times a day. And I didn't look like a person that was training that much, you know, I still carried, you know, an extra 10 pounds of body fat that I couldn't move, like I couldn't, you know, get rid of. And I just, I, I, I always put it down to, you know, I had felt like I didn't have some good genes, you know, I, growing up in my family, I always, you know, I, I saw a lot of um, sickness in my family. And I saw, you know, my own parents struggle with weights, particularly my mother. And I just thought that we had the, you know, some some bad genes, we had the fat gene, and I kind of all of this was fueling that um, narrative in my mind. 
in the background saying, yeah, you know, you've just, you know, you've got some, some crappy genes and you've got to work harder than everybody else. But what I didn't realize is I was, wasn't necessarily that I had to work harder than everybody else. It was that I was not, I wasn't working smarter. I was not eating well. And I thought I was, and I was following all of the so-called standard nutrition advice. And I was just, I was struggling. I was getting stuck. And, you know, it was in my desperation for the quest of like this, there's got to be a better way than this. I'm starving. I'm obsessed with food. I'm, I'm having a hard time making weight. My performance wasn't great. I was picking up niggling injuries that I was like, there's got to be something better. So I talked to the good old internet and just, you know, from typing around, I ended up stumbling on a blog, Mark's Daily Apple, who is Mark Sisson, who's kind of the godfather of the, the, the primal movement. And just, you know, went onto his blog and it was this guy who was mid fifties at the time. He was in amazing shape and basically said that he was a, you know, a, a lower carb grain free athlete and felt the best he had in years when he ditched the carbs and all of that stuff. And I was like, that's very, very interesting. And at the time I was desperate. So I said, you know what, I think I can try that. I'll just see what happens. I'm, I'm not like really buying into it because of everything that's against the, the grain of everything I know. But you know what, I've got nothing to lose, so I'll try it. And after that month was done and I'd lost, you know, stubborn five pounds that I couldn't move for ages and I looked better and I felt better and I was sleeping better. I was like, okay, this is onto something. And that was really the catalyst then to just, you know, just continue learning as much as possible. And now fast forward, you know, 10 years after that, foray, that now that's kind of, you know, all of that learning and all of those challenges and overcoming that and my own struggles with weight and my own struggles with my self-limiting beliefs and especially the kind of you know thinking that you you are a product of your genetics and all of that stuff is is now what I try and help others to how to navigate their health journey and understand that you know there's a better way there's an easier way they've just probably never heard it or they've not been shown it or maybe they need just a little nudge in the right direction so there's a long journey and um, you know I'm thankful for all of the lessons and the hardships because it's now what helps me be an effective coach I believe but it was essentially that those struggles with my frustrations in athletics and my frustrations with my body composition as, as a you know a, a youngster and all of the self-consciousness that comes with that and finally figuring out that ah I was just doing it the wrong way and <laughs> there's a better way and now that is an easier way and it feels much better and it's uh, it's happier and healthier. Well, thanks so much for sharing all of that. Uh, I think it can be so hard for people to find out the right information. There's mm. so much information out there. It's so much to wade through. Uh, and most people don't even know where where to look or right. where to begin. I, uh, I love what you said about genetics and genes because yeah. I think a lot of us feel trapped by our genetics. I, my, my father was um, obese my, my entire life. He passed away at the young age of 54. Right. And um, I can remember once speaking to my doctor at the age of 19, I, I, I had been on birth control pills and I didn't like some of the side effects and I told him I wanted to go off. And one of the things I mentioned was that I had started to gain weight. Now I had always been a healthy weight as a child and a teenager. And one of the first things the doctor said was, well, obesity does run in your family. Like I was destined to become yeah. obese. And I think that's a mindset we really need to get rid of for sure. I agree. It's this, this idea that is, is so powerful to harness that we now understand the, the role of epigenetics and really taking control of your genes. Like there are certain genes that we inherit that determine our high color and our facial structure and our height and those things. But there's also this entire kind of idea that we have control over our genes with the environment that we provide through what we eat and how we think and how we sleep and how we move and that we can essentially turn on and off the genes for longevity or for fat loss or for inflammation depending on the environment that we're providing so that gives you this freedom almost that you know these familial predispositions that we have they load the gun but really it's environment that pulls the trigger and it's scary and powerful at the same time to realize that you're the one in charge of your environment you are the one that creates that so we've got this stuff that yeah you know we should pay attention to and we should honor it because it it gives us some nuance but really 
it's not as deterministic as we once thought. It's not that, you know, oh, you have diabetes or you have obesity or you have cancer and cancer was the one in my family. So that was the big scary C word. And now I understand those things, but it's your environment that pulls the trigger. And if you don't, you know, create an environment where those things will manifest, then you don't need to follow suit. You can forge your own path. You can, you know, be healthy. You can be slim. You can fight your way out of diabetes or, you know, stay away from cancer as long as you understand those things and you can harness that power. So I think it's just incredibly powerful for people to hear, like, you are not the genes that you have been dealt. You, you are not. You have control and you just have to honor that and understand that and start to create positive eating habits and thinking habits and lifestyle behaviors that make sure that you're fostering a positive environment. Absolutely. Of course, the genes play a role. If you do have poor health, if you do have inflammation, your genes will predict what chronic diseases will be mm -hmm. triggered, but we still have that control, which is Absolutely. so important. So I'd like to talk a little bit about fad diets. Uh, ketogenic diet has become very popular, very trendy lately. And you see it all over Instagram where people are posting about their Starbucks drink full of sugar-free syrup and heavy cream or skinny syrups full of sucralose and fathead dough, everything. Mm. What are your thoughts on a keto diet and how can someone do it right? Yeah, so there are some real serious health benefits to a ketogenic diet when it's done right. Uh, and I think that's largely down to, you know, looking at this conundrum of optimal health through a lens of evolution, because I believe that nothing makes sense unless looked at through the lens of evolution, because we have been evolving into these big brained, smart hominids that do the cool things like this and Skype across the world and do podcasts and fly planes and all of that good stuff. But what got us here? Well, it was really our evolutionary kind of paradigm that was you know, driven with selection pressure and times of scarcity and hardship and different seasons, availability to different foods. And it, within that thinking, I think it's very likely, uh, it's probably well established at this point, that we spent a lot of time in ketosis throughout our evolutionary period, uh, which essentially, for the listeners that don't know, ketosis is a carbohydrate-restricted um, metabolism that is, you know, the byproduct of fat metabolism now because carbohydrates aren't coming in produces ketones. So now you're burning that predominantly as your state of fuel. Now this can be because of carbohydrate restriction. It could also be fasting-induced. So both of those will probably likely in our evolutionary paradigm that we were fasting, but we weren't calling it fasting. We were essentially just trying to find our next meal. And that wasn't always guaranteed. Now we've got, you know, uh, easy access to food, 24-7 access to food. We can order it on our phones. So the idea of, you know, thinking about never knowing where our next meal come from is a foreign concept to us modern humans. But that was pretty much, you know, 99% of our evolution. So we definitely had some fasting-induced ketosis, but also the carbohydrate-induced ketosis because we didn't have whole grain wraps and, and, you know, cereal grains and bread for a long, long time. And especially if you have you know, Northern European ancestry, or you have ancestors that evolved anywhere where there was snow on the ground in the winter, you were not eating fruits and vegetables and pineapple and all of these exotic things, because that doesn't grow when there's snow on the ground. You were mostly eating, you know, wild game and what can be caught. So ketosis, in a nutshell, is a fundamental part of our base metabolic machinery you know it's probably our default setting as a metabolism standpoint goes this ability to burn fat and i think ketosis is an amazing tool because it helped us survive those hardships so now it's come full circle and it's back in the trend like you say and um, we've just kind of lost sight of how to do it correctly i think and we are just chasing ketones we're chasing this idea that as long as it's low enough carbohydrates that will be in a state of ketosis and that's all that matters. But that results in what I would call a dirty ketogenic diet. Like you alluded to, people doing the sugar-free syrups and you know, just eating gallons of sour cream and all of these other foods that just because they're high fat, low carbohydrates, technically are keto, um, but anything can be keto. It's it's an amount driven thing. You know, a starburst can be keto if you only chew a quarter of it. It doesn't mean that it's a healthy food. So um, you know, I think what we've done is we've just um, got the ketogenic diet. It's become trendy. It's it's become trendy for a reason, by the way, because it is a very powerful fat loss tool and people do feel good on it. But we should be careful about the difference between, 
you know, a dirty ketogenic diet where we forget food quality, which is the one that is becoming popular now. And you see it on the front of magazines and you see it in the, in the news and the real version of a ketogenic diet, which is still focused on real food and nutrient density and eating, you know, organic, well-sourced and um, real food. So I think that that is where the two kind of depart from one another. And though they both may produce the same nutritional state, the two are actually quite different in terms of the health outcomes and the benefits that they provide. I couldn't agree more. I know for myself personally, I struggled with my weight throughout most of my adult life. And one of the things I used to try was calorie counting. Mm. And I didn't focus on the quality of the food. Mm. In fact, calorie counting, uh, it encouraged me to eat more processed food because there was a number on the box that I could count. And so I was focused on the weight loss and not on what kind of food I was eating. And I think a ketogenic diet can people can view it the same way as long as I'm getting in my my net carbs for the day it doesn't really matter what I'm putting in my body I'm going to lose the weight and yeah they probably will lose the weight but in the long term those health benefits just won't be there I agree and I think it's okay I think a lot of people start there by the way I think a lot of people do maybe catch word or they catch wind of keto and they start in this, what we are now talking about as being maybe, you know, not the cleanest version or this dirty keto version. And that's okay because it's a foot in the door. And now they've got the foot in the door and maybe they'll realize, yeah, they might lose that 10, 20 pounds and they feel great. And now they have more exposure to this. Maybe now they have a bit more consciousness to a lot to, well, wait a minute. Well, let's really think about these ingredients here because like, like I said, you know, um, dressings are a good example, right? You can go to the store and you can buy like a fat-based dressing like a ranch and you can look at the back and it says, oh, it's, it's zero carbohydrates. This is keto. That's great. I'm going to put ranch on everything. But then you dive into the ingredients and it's made with hydrogenated oils and it's got funky gums in there and it's non-organic and all of that other stuff. So it is a foot in the door for people and it can really be the jumping off point. But what we really want people to do is to get away from that idea of keto over all else and just looking at carbohydrates and think about those things within the context of eating real food. Like like you said, with the calorie counting approach, it can often just become an obsession with numbers and tracking total calories and tracking net carbohydrates and without the emphasis on food quality. And I think we need to really put an emphasis on food quality because Food is more than energy and it's more than a nutritional state. It's information and that is, you know, we are what we eat, literally. We, we are rebuilding the, all the time. We're making new muscles and new cells and you are going to do that much better with a bioavailable, ancestrally appropriate, you know, intake of real foods than you are on a diet of fake foods because food is information and every bite of food you take is giving the instruction manual on your body as, as to how to rebuild and repair and function. So we definitely need um, more emphasis in the low-carb ketogenic community on, on quality, uh, you know, the quality of our food, not just the quantity or, you know, our macros or keeping our carbohydrates below a certain number. I agree. I agree. And I think that's a good point about it being a journey for everyone. Hopefully mm-hmm. starting off looking into keto, it's a starting off point. And as they progress on their journey, hopefully people will start looking into more better quality foods and not just about the carbs. So let's talk about inflammation and gut health. Um, We've already touched on the fact that inflammation is the cause of most chronic disease. Why are so many of us suffering from inflammation and we don't even know it? What are some of the signs, symptoms of inflammation? How can we heal our gut? Yeah, so the inflammation, like you said, it's 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 pretty much at the root cause of any modern chronic Western disease. So we're, we're, we're talking about things that are manifesting over years, decades, not things that are surprise illnesses like cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's, neurodegeneration, these autoimmune diseases, they didn't happen overnight. I know that the, the diagnosis sometimes can surprise people and they, oh my God, I felt like I was healthy and I got hit with this and I was blindsided. But those things have been being fueled or being um, you know, put into manifestation for years. And that is usually driven by an inflammatory process. And these inflammatory processes, the, the, the signs and symptoms are often right before our very eyes, but also kind of hard to see for many people because they uh, they don't have the ability to check in with their body. They think being in pain or having chronic headaches or having, you know, 
acne breakouts or psoriasis or IBS or swollen joints or you name it. Any of these can be signs of inflammation and they've just come to accept them as normal. So they don't really see the red flag. And, you know, they may even get treatment for these. They may even see a doctor about these and they may be given some medications. But again, that treatment is all about, you know, just treating the symptom. It's not getting to the root cause. And the root cause is often inflammation. And that inflammation is often driven by adverse lifestyle and dietary factors. So people that are suffering from inflammation, usually they're eating a diet that's not suitable for them. That is, is just in, it's too high in man-made refined foods. The lifestyle may be driving inflammation too. They might be super stressed. They might not be sleeping enough. They might be overtraining. They might not be moving at all. They might be living in a toxic environment. So inflammation is, is just this, this kind of word that we have, but it's got so many inputs and our internal stress bucket, you know, is, is kind of just overflowing and that's spilling out into all areas of our life, but it's driving inflammation and that's going to rob us of our health, rob us of, of, of our vitality. It's going to impact our gut. And I know you just touched on the gut that can be a driver of that inflammation too. Like a smart dude, Hippocrates said many, many years ago at this point that all disease starts in the gut. And he was right. You know, the gut is really the the seat of our digestion and our immune system it's where we absorb and assimilate foods and if it's damaged and it's leaky or it's permeable or it's inflamed because of this highly refined man-made food diet or it's too high in gluten that's causing permeability or we're not eating organic foods so we're getting you know pesticide exposure to glyphosate and we're drinking a lot and we're not managing stress like all of these things are assaults on the gut and if the gut is permeable Food is getting into the bloodstream, which is where it shouldn't be, and that's mounting an immune response, and this is further driving the inflammation. This can lead to weakened immune system. Like people are getting sick, you know, three, four, five times a year. They think it's completely normal. It could be leading to autoimmunity, where the body's immune system is so overwhelmed that now it's attacking its healthy cells because it can't differentiate foreign invaders from healthy cells, and this can lead to things you know, all kinds of things from asthma to psoriasis to rheumatoid arthritis and all of these things stem from inflammatory processes, many of them rooted in gut and gut health. And I think that, you know, at the root of most of that is what we put in our mouths and how we feed ourselves. Absolutely. I think one of the most important things you touched on was that most of us think our symptoms are normal. We have mm. no idea that we have inflammation and it's not until we actually get healthy that we realize those things we were experiencing were not normal. Mm -hmm. um, for myself personally, I started off purely on a weight loss journey. I want, I want to lose weight. I knew losing weight would help my health, but I had no idea how changing my diet would impact my health. Things that I just thought were normal. I had mood swings once a month and mm. my husband would run, run away and hide. And uh, <laughs> when, when I started eating a cleaner diet, um, taking out the grains, taking, taking out sugar, uh, one month came and I was like, oh, I didn't yell and scream at my husband mm. for absolutely no reason. I felt normal again, uh, aches and pains in my joints that I, I took to be, I'm in my 40s, that's starting right. to be normal disappeared and I, I think I, I always want to encourage people like whatever you're going through it doesn't have to be your normal it, mm. it, it take control of your health for sure absolutely and I had similar experience I had chronic headaches and and just like niggling pains that just all went away and it was like a light bulb moment and I was like oh okay this is how it's supposed to be but you're right, people just don't know. And uh, I, I, always, I use the analogy that it's like sleeping on a bed of nails. Like if you slept on a bed of nails from the day you were born until whenever it was, whenever your journey started, um, you would just know, you would know no different. And you would go to bed uh, on that bed of nails every night and you would sleep, no problem. But all of a sudden somebody comes along and they swap out that bed of nails for a nice cushy mattress. Maybe it's Tempur-Pedia, you got a bit of memory foam. And all of a sudden you get on that thing and you're like, oh, this is how it's supposed to be. It's, it's actually, it's nicer, it's comfier. And that's, you know, akin to many people's, you know, health. They just don't know. And, uh, you know, when you know better, you do better and you, you want to tell everybody because you, like you said, it's not, it's, it's not normal to live in pain. It's not normal to live with these aches and pains or constantly be sick or constantly have headaches and, and those things that people, 
you know, just kind of take on as the human normal is, you know, robbing them of the health and decreasing the quality of life. And it doesn't have to be that way. I fully agree. And that's going to start and that's going to look a lot like changing your diet and, you know, overhauling your lifestyle in some respects. And that's not easy, but it's so worth it. So we've talked a lot about diet. Um, When we were talking about inflammation, you mentioned stress. Do you Mm. have any tips for people on ways to reduce our stress? Yeah, stress is um, a big aspect of my, um, well, it was a big aspect of my personal journey and thus my coaching journey and what I help people understand because I think that people underestimate the impact that stress is having on their overall health. Um, You know, we, again, we kind of have to use this lens of evolution again to understand the way we respond to stress. Um, But stress is much different in today's modern environment. You know, stress in our hunter-gatherer times was, it was intense, no doubt. It was survival of predator danger or a starvation threat, and it was literally life or death. But once the stress subsided, it, it was gone, and maybe we could, you know, relax a little bit again and commune with the tribe around the fire, and things would come back to a baseline. But you fast forward to our modern environments and maybe those stresses aren't as intense, but they are chronic. Um, They're just around the whole time and it's 24-7, which leads us to just live in this hyper-stressed environment because we've got stress from work and colleagues and uh, stress from life and stress from our boss and stress from being a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife and stress from our emails and stress from our phones and stress on the news and then stress from our diets and then stress because we're not sleeping enough and then stress because we're getting stressed and then we've got anxiety and now we're stressed about our anxiety and it's just this rat wheel we can't get off so we end up spending most of our life living in this low-grade you know, sympathetic fight or flight response. And that changes our physiology and that can burn us out. It can cause our adrenals to go haywire. It can, it can damage the gut again. It can lead to all kinds of accelerated aging and disease proliferation. And only if we can be aware of that for a second and realize that and maybe do some things to reduce stress so we can get ourselves a little bit more over into the parasympathetic nervous system response, which is the rest and digest or the stay and play. It's the rejuvenate, the, re, the rebuild. That is where some good stuff can happen. And there's many ways you can get there. And, and some of the tips and, and tricks that I use with my clients and in my own personal journey is mindfulness and meditation and breathing techniques and lifestyle factors, um, nature. And there's, there's a whole host of those that we could dive into. But the first thing to understand is most of us don't even realize just how stressed we are and just how much that's impacting our health. And hopefully we can get some awareness and then start to use whatever tool will fit into our life so we can you know, stop redlining the engine so much and come over here a little bit and breathe and downregulate so we can do that rest and digest and get in that parasympathetic nervous system state where we rebuild and we restore and we rejuvenate. Because if we can't, we're, we're just, like I said, we're redlining. And if you drive your vehicle at redline all the time, it's only a matter of time until the bits and pieces start falling off. So sometimes we need to slow life down and you know, fill, our, fill our cup back up with these stress-relieving behaviors. I couldn't agree more. And especially in today's world, it just builds with technology, mm. our cell phones, everything. It, uh, unless we actually remove it, it's, the stress is just always, always there yeah, at the surface chronic. level. So I'm always curious about people's morning routines, how they start their day. I think how we start our day sets us up for mm. what kind of day we're going to have. Do you have a specific morning routine that you do every day? Yeah, I do. I have a, a pretty set morning routine that I'm constantly tweaking and adding and subtracting and, and building so it's more productive and it's helpful. Um, but first thing to say is I completely agree with you. I think how you start the morning sets you up for you know, the rest of your day. And I always encourage people to win the morning. And I say if you win the morning, you are much more likely to win the afternoon and win the day. And life is really just this ongoing game of trying to win more days than you lose quote unquote so if we win the morning we put ourselves in a good position and we start to build that momentum in order to win the day and if we can do that more often than not then we're going to start being successful so i think morning routines are um super crucial for anybody on a health journey and what People often hear a morning routine and they get they already get the defenses up because they think that the morning is very, very crazy and they don't have time. So I think the first thing to understand is your morning routine doesn't have to be an elaborate, crazy routine. It doesn't have to be 45 minutes or 30 minutes. It can literally be 
five minutes. It could be two minutes. As long as you're doing something that is for you to make you better and so that you can win the morning so you have a better chance of building that positive momentum and taking that through the rest of your day. Um, so it's important. Establish a morning routine, even if it's one minute, but preferably, you know, build something in there that, you know, like I said, gets you in good stead for the rest of the day. So my morning routine is I get up at the same time pretty much every day, which is um, it's either 6.45 or 7.00. Um, and I get up and I immediately go outside. Um, so I get up, I basically, I pick up my, put on some clothes and I grab my water bottle that's been sitting at the side of my bed and I immediately go outside. And the reason that I do this, and I live in Northeast Pennsylvania, so it's not exactly warm, but I still try to get outside because it's incredibly important first thing in the morning to get some light on your skin and in your eyeballs. Um, the reason being is it locks in your circadian rhythm and your clock. So when we wake up and we've just kind of shocked ourselves out of uh, our restfulness with an alarm, we still have some melatonin in the bloodstream. And to turn off that melatonin tap and to get the body systems working efficiently, which would see like, you know, a natural rise in cortisol and shaking off that sleepiness from turning off that melatonin, light is really going to help that. So I get outside and I just go outside and I look out. I live up here in the countryside. It's very beautiful. And I just look out onto the horizon for, you know, a minute and I just take it in and, and kind of unofficially have a little bit of a gratitude practice there for, you know, having another day and this nature's beauty. And I see the animals, I see the turkeys in the yard and the deer in the yard. And like I said, I only stay out there very quickly, but I generally gaze in the direction of the sun. This whole thing takes a minute to a minute and a half. And I try and get a lot of water in immediately too, a minimum of 16 ounces, sometimes 32 ounces. And then I come in, I close the, the patio door and I plop my butt on my meditation pillow and I go right into my meditation. So I do a 15 minute meditation every single morning. Um, the brief version of the meditation practice is based on, you know, a, a loose outline of Emily Fletcher's uh, Stress Less Accomplish More. It's just a great book. And uh, it's the three M's of meditation that I follow. So one minute focused on mindfulness, which is just coming to the senses and checking in with my breath, checking in with my body, listening to the sounds in the room, the smells in the room, anything that I can become aware of, then into the meditation portion, which is, you know, we can talk about it if you would like. It's, it's I think meditation has uh, some myths around it that, that can be dispelled that, you know, it's it's not sitting in a in a cave in the Himalayas and, and you know, chanting Om. It's, it's, you know, meditation to get good at life and to get you into that parasympathetic mode and to make you more efficient. And that takes, you know, 10 minutes. And then at the end of that meditation portion, do some manifesting and some gratitude. So, you know, thinking about and feeling three things that I'm very grateful for. And then manifesting something. And the manifesting word is, is very ethereal or woo-woo for some people. But it's really just using the power of visualization. Um, and once you understand that our mind, when you're fully present with an experience, whether it's perceived or real, it, the mind really doesn't know any difference. That's why when we think about something that we have a strong emotional reaction to something that happened to us in the past, it can, it can change our state in the, in the present moment. You know, something can make us cry or make us laugh or make us emotional. Much like if you know you've got something coming up that is potentially giving you some anxiety, maybe it's public speaking or something. Like by thinking about that thing, you can feel the stress response happen. You can feel your heart rate start to flutter and the, and the, and the sweaty palms and those kind of things. So it's very well established that by perceiving something in our mind, we can change our state. And that is because the mind doesn't really differentiate between something that is perceived and something that is actually happening now if we know that we can make we can put that on our side and, and take advantage of that by envisioning success and abundance and, and happiness and health or any of these things that you want to manifest and that's just you know picking something that you're working on something that you want and feeling it and feeling it as clear as day not as though it's something that you want but as though it's something that has already happened and feeling what you will feel like when that happens and how happy you would be and the emotions attached to that and just creating that in so you can get your mind on your side and rather than your mind just being this automatic loop of behaviors and habits and routines and a memory of the past, instead turning the mind into a tool or a map of the future that you can use to create your best health or your career goals or whatever, literally whatever you want to manifest. And that is basically the closeout of my meditation practice. Um, then right from there, it's just a little bit of light movement. I'm already on the floor, so I just slide my butt off my cushion. I spend five minutes just, you know, moving my spine, get popping a deep squat, have a little bit of a twist, 
And that is where I would basically conclude my morning practice. So the whole thing is like 20 minutes. And at that point, only then is it time to, you know, turn on the computer or, you know, switch the phone off airplane mode and, and check the emails and empty the inbox. And then, you know, think about having a cup of coffee, think about carrying on hydration and then getting into the day. But that that is a non-negotiable for me, that kind of uh, window of 20, 25 minutes to get outside, move my body, hydrate, meditate. And um, yeah, that sets me up for a good day. That's how I try to win the morning so I can be more effective and win the day. I think that's an awesome routine. Uh it's so tempting for us when we wake up in the morning, especially if we sleep with our phones on our night tables, mm -hmm. that's the first thing we do is grab for our phone. I still, I still struggle with that a little bit. I'm trying not to do that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I also read Emily Fletcher's book on meditation, stress, less, accomplish more. And I think you summarized it, it very well, but I, I also, I recommend it to everybody I see. I'm like, yeah, you have right. to read this book on meditation because, uh, she does a good job. I think, of um, demystifying meditation mm. and talking about the practical uses, how it actually affects the brain and um, the manifest manifestation part of it. Actually, I struggled with it at the beginning. I didn't yeah. know what my goals were, and it was as doing it more. Suddenly, I I had goals. Suddenly, I had things yeah, I wanted to right. manifest about, which was kind of cool. That is very uh, cool. so. You talk a lot on Instagram about movement and the difference between movement versus exercise. Let's talk a little bit about that. What's your movement philosophy? Yeah, so I do. I, I, I talk about um, exercising less and moving more. And I think what I'm trying to convey with that message is let's get people out of the mindset that exercise it can only be conducted in you know, a gym environment or by running, you know, like logging some miles on the road or going to a spin class or whatever these paradigms that we've locked ourselves into when we think about exercising, you know, and it's very rigid. And if, if, you know, you're a guy or a girl and you go into the gym and it's like, okay, I'm going to do, you know, three sets of 10 on this and I'm working on machines or, you know, you're going to a class to be told what to do, or you're going to run five miles and then, you know, in, in a month, you're going to run six miles. And, and it's just kind of very linear. And it's not, it's not got too much room for flair and creativity and expression and, you know, just freedom to investigate and have some fun with it. And I think that people burn out on that quite quickly. So the idea of moving more is not only a philosophical one to have a bit more fun and test your body in terms of many, many different movement, you know, paradigms and, and kind of... Um, ways which you express but also the actual act of what does movement mean because you know when we we become we usually tend to gravitate to something that we like to do you know like the classic gym bro likes to lift weights and that's all they do the classic you know yoga yogi likes to do yogi and that's all they do and then you've got the spin bikers over here then you've got the runners but by doing those movement patterns over and over again they they become quite predictable and we become um, quite rigid because we develop certain postures and I don't think that is the goal or that should be the celebration of this amazing human body that we have which is very adaptable and able to move in many many different ways and able to do some quite remarkable things if only we get back to having an like an organic movement practice so I, I like to think of movement as um, a language in terms of your, your goal with movement should be to try and speak as many languages as possible and to diversify your movement language. And in doing that, you can have more fun, right? You can interact with more people or more of the environment around you because you have more capacity to do so. And I always say that the ground is the best movement teacher in the game. And if we're trying to diversify our movement language, then just getting on the ground is really the Rosetta Stone or it's your personal you know, teacher or your, or your tutor on speaking new languages, because just by getting on the ground, we can see many, many movement um, variations that we can do. And we can just have some play and we can start crawling around or rolling around or putting ourselves in different positions that 
most people just never get to. And even the people that are fit, even the people that are going out and doing CrossFit and, you know, the lifting weights and the going running and they're generally defined as being, you know, athletic and they're fit and healthy and all of that stuff. The movement quality typically isn't that good and they can't, you know, get up and down off the ground very efficiently and they can't move the body and express in certain ways. So movement is about developing a whole body um, appreciation for what the body can do and training it in that way and honoring it in that way and just having fun with your movement practices and not being so rigid or not so fixed by rules like three sets of 10 or five miles or you know 30 minutes on the treadmill or whatever other kind of um, you know uh, habit uh, or exercise that you uh, adhere to. I love what you said about diversifying I think it's something a lot of us forget mm. oh as long as I'm exercising as long as I'm moving but yeah if it's the same type of exercise over and over your body gets accustomed to it yeah and very much so. your body's not doing everything it can uh do you have any tips for someone like me i work in an office sitting mm. all day long and i don't have access to a standing desk yeah one of the things i do do is i put a timer on my computer it pops up every 30 minutes saying yeah. get up and move and so i will get up try and do some stretches at my desk, take a few steps. Yeah. Is there any other things I could be doing? Yeah. So firstly, I like that you're doing the 30 minutes thing. That's that's something I tell everybody to try and do. Um, not just to inject movement into the life, which is obviously very important, but also like to give your brain a break. You know, it's important that your brain get so stagnant when you're sitting and you're still too because I think a lot of people don't realize that the number one function of the brain is actually to control movement so really when we are still the brain is still it's not firing but when the body moves the brain grooves so it's really when we actually move our body do we actually fire our brain again and we can you know accelerate learning with that and we can become more efficient with that because if we have learned something and we really want to consolidate it or improve our like recall of that and put it into long-term memory it's really important to move and to do that because you get more neurons firing and neurons that fire together wire together so movement is incredibly important for learning and efficiency as well as it's incredibly important for your body so for number one I'm glad that you're doing that um, number two not having access to a standing desk presents a challenge but it's not necessarily you know the be-all and end-all because some people swap sitting desks for standing desks and they think that they've done themselves a huge service because they're increasing their movement, but they're not actually increasing their movement because they've just gone from sitting still to standing still. And moving is really the key here and not being sedentary. So um, why we're actually on this chat right now, you, you might be able to see because we're doing a Skype video, but I'm sitting on the ground and I do all of my coaching on the ground. and. When a certain position gets uncomfortable for me, like sitting cross-legged for the last 45 minutes, I start to shift my position. So now I'm sitting in a butterfly position. Then I'll go to like a hip 90-90 position. Then I might sit on my ankles. So what that's doing is it's becoming a movement practice organically. I'm not thinking about these things. I'm getting these subtle subconscious cues from my body that, oh, your knee's seizing up a little bit. Your hip is getting a little bit tight. And I adjust accordingly. So this obviously depends if you have, you know, a desktop computer and it's not able to move onto the ground you can't just shove your whole practice on the ground but it does emphasize this idea that movement is really the key and when you can take those breaks you can take them and stand up and do a little bit of a stretch but you can also go back to sitting but now you're going to sit on the ground and you can change things up another way in the workplace environment is what i would encourage just is to start seeing any and every opportunity you can to move even as small as it as, as it might seem so if you you know work in an office building and you're on the sixth floor and every day the routine has just become to jump in the elevator, be the person that takes the stairs. It seems like very small, but it makes a big difference over time. Be the person that stops looking for the closest parking space to the entrance and park all the way in the furthest spot away of your parking lot because you know that might only be an extra 50 steps a day, but over a year, that's like thousands of steps. That's more movement. Um, when you get your lunch break, everybody kind of congregates in the room, they eat the lunch, they, they, they slam it down nice and quick so they can kind of get back and have 10 minutes to chill and scroll through social media or catch up on email or whatever. 
go and see if you can get outside and spend that min- and spend that time just having a walk around your office building or just just getting outside because you're going to get those benefits again of getting natural light on your face so you can marry movement with other healthy lifestyle habits like getting outside so there's always opportunities to move more and it doesn't have to be you know this grandiose exercise based thing it's not like you have to drop down and do push-ups and and jumping jacks and and all this crazy stuff it just means you know looking for any ways and getting creative in any way possible that you can potentially move more you know if you're brewing a coffee and the Keurig machine takes 35 seconds to brew your cup of coffee like drop into a deep squat while the Keurig machine is brewing your coffee like there's unlimited ways and you're only really limited by your own creativity and imagination so just look just just start looking and start you know paying attention to your habits like what do you do every day and where can you tweak those to inject more movement into them and you'll see there's there's quite a lot even if we think that our routines are quite rigid there's still a lot of flexibility to get more movement in. I love all of those tips and it really is those those small tiny changes, those little tweaks that over time add up and make big changes. Big time. So one of the things I love about your Instagram is your rants on your Instagram stories and you you don't hold back. You you say it like it is. What would you say is one of your biggest health rants or what you think are one of the biggest health misconceptions out there that you want to stop people from doing? Mm, God, that's a good one. (laughs) There is a lot. (laughs) lot. Um, One of the bigger ones, let me see. I think the idea first and foremost that like just diet culture in general, the the word diet, even immediately, as soon as somebody says the D, the dreaded D word, it brings up this negativity with it. And it's like, oh, no, another diet, like, it's going to be boring, it's going to be restrictive, I'm going to have no fun on this. And I can't wait until it ends, but I'm doing it for the next four weeks. So I can, you know, get ready for my holiday in Mexico, and then I'm off it. So we treat diets like this, punishment thing or this not fun thing or something that we feel like we have to do or we're compelled to do for for whatever reason but I think what many people fail to realize is everybody has a diet you're all on a diet it's just whether your diet is serving you or not it's not you know everybody's on a diet it's just that most people aren't looking at it that way or thinking about the food that they're putting in so they're not you know using that word but just getting rid of this misconception that being on a diet, if you want to use that word, or whether you want to transition it to, you know, making a lifestyle change or whatever, however you want to phrase that is just, it shouldn't be doom and gloom and it shouldn't be uh, miserable. It should actually be really fun because it's giving you back your health and there's nothing more important than that. And it's going to give you back productivity and it's going to give you back clarity and presence. And when you start to eat healthy, you're not doing this for anybody else. You, know, you shouldn't be doing this for anybody else. You should want to do this for you. And, and when you do that, you're taking an affirmation for yourself that you deserve better. You deserve to be healthy. You deserve to be happy. And I think sometimes that we, we just have all of this baggage with diets that we're not doing it for us. We're doing it to kind of live up to some other, other person's exam, uh, expectation of what successes or what people should look like or trying to validate other people's feelings when we should just you know do this for us do this because we want to be healthier do this because we want to be happier and drop all the baggage that comes with that and just you know do your best and eat real food and celebrate that rather than you know being in that mindset of oh here we go again I've you know I've got a little bit too heavy I want to lose 10 pounds so I'm going to do this diet And then it's not sustainable and you just, you know, you flop from diet to diet to diet and you never have lasting success because it hasn't become a lifestyle for you. It's not become a real change. It's just become a quick fix, but you're not addressing the root cause. So I think that's a big, you know, a big issue just around the whole health and wellness space first and foremost is that people just have a hard time committing to these practices because they think that by doing so they're missing out on some something or they're depriving themselves of something and it becomes this this forbidden fruit kind of idea that as soon as they say they can't have a certain food, that's all they want and they can't wait for the weekend so they can cheat the way out of it. They can have their cheat meal, etc. And it just creates unhealthy habits. So I think just, 
you know, if you're interested in, you know, getting healthy, just like really getting clear on your why, like, why do you want to do this? And if that's for somebody else, or it's to validate yourself by a number on the scale, then they'll go deeper than that. There's, there's better reasons, there's more sustainable reasons, there's more rock solid whys than, you know, um, looking a certain way or, or a number on a scale, because what happens when you get there, you know, it just, you end up suffering from this, I'll be happy when syndrome, and I'll be happy when, you know, I weigh X amount or I'll be happy when I have this or that or this amount of followers or this amount of likes rather than just understanding. Again, it comes back to this being a journey. It's a journey and you're going to be on it forever. And it's just, you know, get a 1% better every day and be gentle with it and, you know, enjoy all of it, the peaks and the troughs, you know, when you fail and you fall off, that's okay. You know, enjoy that too, because if you can enjoy it, you can realize there's a lesson in that. And the whole thing then becomes you know, a growth mindset, the whole thing becomes um, a way for you to get better rather than just, uh, you know, I'm doing this keto thing for 30 days, or I'm doing this vegan thing for a month, or I'm doing this, that and the other, you know, just just be a person that's trying to be healthier and enjoy it, everything. I think the why is so important. When the why mm. is a number on the, on a scale, it will be temporary. When you reach yeah. that number, it'll end. If the why is about health and longevity and wellness, uh, you'll have a much different outcome and it will be a lifestyle change. Exactly. And I think language is so important. The word diet itself implies something temporary yeah. that, that has an end. And a, it is it is a journey and a journey doesn't have an end. It, it mm. continues. The other thing I think it's important about language is the language we use about the foods we are or not eating and mm -hmm. negative language versus positive language saying oh I can't eat that because that's not on my diet plan versus you know what I'm choosing not to eat that because I'm choosing health that's it's a big it, difference it's, it's two completely different meanings but for the same thing essentially yeah it's a huge difference and our and our self-talk is is really really important and undervalued and, and having those little switches and, and being aware enough to change the, that dialogue can be the difference between success and failure in many instances. And it's so important. You're right. Well, Steve, I have really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, where can people find you online and on Instagram, social media, all of that? Um, pretty much Peak Primal Health on all the platforms. Peak Primal Health on Instagram, which I'm probably the most um, active on there with the, with the daily rants and movement videos and lifestyle tips and diet hacks and all of that good stuff. Um, Facebook is Peak Primal Health also and peakprimalhealth.com. So you can find me there. Send me an email. Keep in touch. If you listen to this, let me know if you enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, I'd be happy to chat. I never leave an inbox left behind. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I hope people will check out your Instagram. I, I really enjoy it personally. You have lots of great health tips, lots of great rants. And uh, just thank you so much for chatting with me today. I appreciate it, Kathy. Thanks for inviting me on and having important chats like this. I hope people provided uh, got some value out of it. Thank you. I hope so, too. hope you all enjoyed this week's episode. Come back next week for more health and wellness tips, advice, and stories. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, please give a review on iTunes, share it with your friends, take a screenshot, share it on Instagram, tag me at Kathy underscore live your best life. See you next week.